Good evening, fellow human beings. Who had a nap this afternoon? Sunday afternoon naps are smashingly good. Smashingly good. Well, glad that you are here tonight. Uh, we are in the book of Acts. We are in chapter 6. We have in our hands tonight not a very um, difficult text. And so I try to extract some thoughts from it that I hope will be beneficial to us as we think of the church. I think so far we have seen Luke is trying to... Luke seems to have had sources that he... And some of it probably he was the first witness, but he seems to have extracted the information that he puts down in the book of Luke. And, and he's, he's probably selective as to what he puts in through the work of the Holy Spirit. And, he, and so there's cert, certain things he puts in there that um, uh, are there for a specific reason. Um, we have seen how he explains to us how the work of the Spirit and the preaching of the gospel started in the streets of Jerusalem and moved up into the temple courts and moved up into actually the Sanhedrin so that the Jews can have no they cannot say that the gospel has not been spread throughout the whole of Jerusalem. And so he explains that whole scenario. And he's trying to paint us a picture of what this, this church looked like, this, this first century church. And so he talks about the church and its life and, and how they sell their possessions for one another. And, and then he moves into specific events, to, like, for example, um, Ananias and Sapphira, that they lied, and this, how Satan tries to enter the church and, and how they were disciplined, how the Spirit disciplined um, them, uh, pointing out to us all the different aspects of, um, of the church. And so last week we spoke basically about the idea of how um, the, 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 the leaders of Israel, um, the high priest and his guys who has had ample opportunity to accept the gospel still don't want to do it, and they still want to keep this message quiet, the message of the gospel. And this is, the, this is the key theme you see right through the book of Acts. Not only the church, but primarily, if, if I had to take the book of Acts and say, well, what is the key theme going through it? I would say it's the proclamation of the gospel. It's how the gospel penetrates the world. And there are different characters involved in the story. And the church is, is growing. And, and so the church almost is the result of the proclamation of the gospel. And Luke is painting to us, for us a picture through the Holy Spirit of just who all the players are in creating this, this event. Um, now, tonight we, we, are, we are getting into a, a section of text that really deals with one of the first events in the life of the church um, that is uh, organizational. And, and so it seems like up to this point, the, the gospel is just being preached in different ways, different places, and the Holy Spirit's leading this thing. Um, but for the first time, we see the church really has to get organized a little bit and dish out responsibilities to, different, uh, to another group of people. Um, I think that Luke is recording this section of the history of the early church to us um, because I think it's an introduction to Stephen, who is killed in the next chapter, who is an introduction to the Apostle Paul. When he comes into the scene. And so I think that Luke is laying the foundation for us here. And he's setting the stage 
for what is to come. And if you look back at the last five chapters, you will see that he does it the whole time. He sets the stage for what is coming next. And I think we need to approach it that way. So I want to I read to you the last verse that we dealt with last week. Remember, they were persecuted, they were thrown in prison. They were taken out of prison by the angel. What did they do? They went and preached again. So they went back into the, the streets. It's a comical scene as the Sanhedrin meets, and they like go call those guys from prison. Oh, we don't know where they are. Ah, they're busy preaching in the streets again. So they go drag them out of the streets, bring them in front of the Sanhedrin, and what does Peter say to them? You killed Jesus. You. It's like Peter, just relax, bro. It's the truth. You killed Jesus. I mean, these guys are fed up, and then Gamaliel stands up, and he's got some wisdom, and he says, hey, let's just relax for a moment. Um, if this is from God, there's nothing you can do against it. You're fighting against God. And they then had, what did they do to them when they let them go? They beat him. 39 lashes, right? I've never been beat that way. Remember at, at school, we spoke about that last week. I've been beat at school, but never 39 lashes, maybe five. And that's painful. And it was humiliating. And what does the text say next? They went on their way rejoicing. They're like happy. Woohoo! It's wonderful to suffer for the name of Christ. And then this verse pop, pops up. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, where's? They never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is an incredible verse if you read the whole context. They told them, don't go preach anymore. They've just been beaten. They say, well, we won't stop. We'll go from house to house. We'll go in the public. Wherever we go, we will continue preaching this message. Now, I've got a quick question for us. How do you think Satan feels at this moment in the story? Like everything, he tries everything. He gets people to lie in the church to stop this movement. He gets the Sanhedrin to throw them in prison. He can't even keep them in prison. He gets them beaten up. They still won't keep quiet. I mean, let's be real. Probably I would have been keeping quiet at this stage. Maybe I would have. I don't know. I've been in prison. I've been beaten. They, they, they won't stop. They won't stop. So what do we see here? Remember, what's Acts about? The proclamation of the gospel, okay, the spreading of the message. And you see this, this constant friction. The Spirit of God launches forward the word. The Spirit of Satan tries to stop it the whole time. Would you like to guess what comes next after this verse? Again, Satan says, let me try something else. Let me try something different. I've tried, I've tried to penetrate the church now through lies. Ananias and Sapphira. I've tried to use the Sanhedrin to stop this thing. I can't stop this thing. Let me try something else. I hope that's an introduction for the story that we're going to look at tonight. Let's read it. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, <coughs> the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. There's a problem here, and I believe that this is a, a strategy that's brought about by Satan. First, as I said, Satan attacked from outside. 
Then he tried to attack from within. And now thirdly, he tries to attack from within. But this time, what's different? There's no sin involved, really. It's underlying what's happening here. And I'll explain that as we, as we go on. This is a group issue. It's a division issue. There's two groups of people in the church here. Now, we think of, often we think back to the early church and we say, well, the early church didn't have the problems that we have today. Let me ask the question, what divisions do we have in the church today? Who would like to say? Okay? Okay, sure. A little bit more secular. Women preachers, okay. Denominations, yes. Okay, in our church, in our church, what divisions are there? Left side and right side. Uh, One of the big things is, one of the big things is political, Republican and Democrat. And we say, well, we don't know how to deal with this. We don't know how to deal with divisions in the body with different perspectives. We all love God, but we've got different perspectives on certain things. This is very, in in a large way, similar to this. We are lucky that we are not in a, we don't have a church with people who speak different languages. There's only two people in this place who speak different languages, me and, me and Alfredo. So we, we lose. We give up. We are an outcast. We're not going to try and get you all to speak Afrikaans. Don't worry about that. But, I mean, if you have a community where you have half the church black and half the church white, let me tell you this, that produces some problems. And we have half the church speaking Spanish and half the church speaking English. I mean, so we think when churches deal with these issues, we think that it is unique. It is not unique. The church has been struggling with groupings, different groupings of people for years. That's exactly what happens here. We have here Hellenists, and we have Hebrews. Now, the, 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 um, the Hellenistic Jews, Hellenism is the term for when the Greek culture overtook the world at the time. And as the Greek language spread, with it came Greek culture. And so essentially what this is saying, it seems like they were Jews who left Jerusalem, who left Judah at some point in the past, maybe their forefathers, and they were living in other parts of the Greek empire, now Roman empire, and they spoke Greek. And there's certain things that they did that was uh, Greekish. And so they were in Jerusalem, probably not because they lived there, but because they came to, to, to worship God, and they came from a, a distant place. But they were now in Jerusalem, and their primary language was Greek. So they weren't, they weren't pagans, who became Jews. It seems like they were Jews, but they've adopted the Hellenistic culture. And then, of course, you have the Hebraic Jews. Who'd like to guess who they are? I mean, these, these guys are the purebreds. They are the pedigrees of the Jewish faith. Their forefathers were, you know, Levi and Benjamin and Judah. They're the clean guys. They always stayed in Jerusalem. They speak Hebrew. They don't speak Greek. Alexander the Great's pagan language. They speak the language of God. So can you imagine what's happening here in the church? What do you think happened? The Hebraic Jews are like, we're the real deal. We're the real deal. We speak Hebrew, God's language, Yahweh. You speak Greek. So there was a superiority issue and a victim issue. The Hebraic Jews saw themselves as superior to the Hellenistic Jews. Because the Hellenistic Jews were a little bit more distant from the, Jewish, um, from, from the Jewish faith. Or the Jewish way of life, shall I say. Not 
um, so, so what we find here is the first click in church. Have you, ever, have you guys ever heard of that? The clicks in churches. You know what's beautiful about Highway 20 here? I haven't picked up clicks here. We come from a church in, in, in Durban where they, we, we saw quite a few clicks. It was difficult to fit in. There was the cool group and the not so cool group, which is, unless you said, Steve, do you think you're in the cool group here? Okay. There's no cool group, man, which is nice, which is beautiful about this church. I mean, so, so here you find the first example of sort of a, a click um, in, in the church. And so what obviously happened is it seems like the guys that were spread, distributing this food to the widows, I mean, remember, the church at this point in time was poor. There was real poverty. Remember, they sold their possessions, right, to give to anyone as they had need because there was a real need. And so food gets distributed, but they sort of looked down on the Hellenistic widows, and so they didn't always get food because they weren't esteemed as high as the Hebraic Jews. There was a class difference in, um, in the church. I think they had an incredible benevolence program here, daily food, um, incredible. Now, there's something about people that strikes me here as I read this. There's a striking resemblance, and I'd like to do this study one day, between the birth of the new covenant um, church and the birth of the old covenant Israel. For example, on Pentecost, how many people were saved? Thank you, my brother, for not being shy, not being reclusive. I appreciate that. At Sinai... How many people were killed when the law was given? 3,000. And I think it's interesting that when the covenant of Christ comes in, 3,000 saved. When the covenant of Moses comes in, 3,000 die. There's some things interesting. But, however, what stands out for me is this. What did the Israelites do when they were in the wilderness that made uh, Moses upset? Yes, but there's a specific attitude that the text says. They grumbled. This word here for complained is the same word as grumble. It's gogusmos, grumbling. Grumbling. And what's interesting for me, what I'd like to extract here is just this. The way that God deals with us seems to have shifted from old to new covenant, right? Old covenant was very damning. Old covenant, you, you, um, you, it, was, it was a different system. And it's illustrated by the fact that God's holy justice required 3,000 people to be killed. And then you get into the new covenant and the God of grace emerges and He, um, he, he provides salvation for 3,000 people. And so God seems to have had this plan, right? And He deals with us in a different way in the covenants. But what stays the same? We do. People stay the same. They grumbled in the wilderness. They grumbled in the brand spanking new church too. It seems like we are just this grumbling people. Their needs were being met. Their souls are saved. But they still find something to grumble over. And maybe their reasons for this grumbling was legit. But it's an insight for us into the, the human nature. I mean... I often come across people who grumble. Sometimes I grumble. 
I'm not satisfied. So that's something I learn about people here. Something I learn about Satan. What did the previous verse say? Chapter 5. Well, the, the message was spreading. So the, the mission was on its way. Okay? And now what does Satan do? Every time there is growth in the church, Satan be, launches a new and more sophisticated attack. Believe, this is a sophisticated attack if you go think about it. Because it's not really sin. It's an undercover sin based on a superiority complex based on your genetics. That's really what this is about. And so Satan says, I'm going to use this to create division. And they were probably all good people. They just weren't aware of, of their blind spot. Um, so, so Satan intensifies his attack as the mission intensifies. But as you know, God allows it, right? We've been studying that. God allows Satan to have a go at the church here. Yeah. And why does he do that? Well, the same reason why he allows it to go at us, him to go at us. This strengthens the church, as you will see uh, tonight. So Satan uses differences in people to pit them against each other to create cold, cold love and division. So pause for a moment. Do you feel Satan has ever used you against somebody else in his church to create division. Because he does that. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just means he's seen a crack in your armor. Because you see, if he can't, if he can't stop the mission, and I'll conclude with this, but if he can stop this mission, this proclamation of the word, what he could do is, is just have us focused on each other and argue with each other because then, what are we focused on? One another, and we forget about the mission. He's clever, this guy. He, he doesn't, I mean, this is one of the things that's going to happen in Africa. You, you, you mark my, it's, it's happening in Africa as we speak. Their mission, and I'm, I'm speaking broadly now, and I'm speaking on behalf of the most, let's say, the most radical black Africans. The EFF, that's, that's their political name. What's it? The Economic Freedom Fighters. Their, their mission is to get the white people out of South Africa. That's their goal. <laughs> That's their mission. But guess what happens when all the white people leave? They fight each other. That's what's going to happen. It's like they're going to fight each other. And that's what's happening now. We see it all the time. It's like they fight. Then they get in, in lockerheads with the ANC, the current ruling, uh, the ruling party, the African National Congress, which is also a black party. So there's, now the black parties are fighting against each other. And I think the white guys sometimes just stand here on the side and look at the fight. I think Satan does the same thing. It's like, I can, as, long, as long as they don't fulfill the mission, it doesn't matter what they do, as long as the word doesn't go out. That's what's happening here. Satan is sharp. I read a quote. Um, it is not our differences that divide us. It is our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. And when I, I use this, con this, this quote in the context of non-essential doctrinal matters. I mean, which is great. I mean, this is not a problem that I feel that we have in this church. But, I mean, I, I, th I think when we can overlook one another's differences and say, well, 
You are like this, and that's weird that you are like this, but I love you. You have this idea. I think it's a stupid idea, but I still love you. You vote for this political party. Are you nuts? You're insane. I'm going to elbow in your head, but then I'll love you again. I mean, can we not just do that? Because Satan wants us to hold on to our differences and say, ah, let's fight it out. So this is the problem. There's a division arising, and it's got to do with what? Food. Something very simple. Now, what, is, what do the apostles do? This is the problem brought to them. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together. Now, I've highlighted the word disciple because that's every time the word that's being used. Okay. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together, verse 2, and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, this um, verse, these verses reveal to us Satan's strategy. He has found a way, he thinks, and he's trying it, but he's found a way to get the church to do what? Neglect what? The ministry of the Word. That's his goal. If he can keep us busy with everything else except the ministry of the Word, he wins. Let that sink in. That's, that's the problem in Acts. The Word spreads. The Sanhedrin can't stop them. Prison can't stop them. So he comes with a sly way. Let me see if I can get the church and the poor widows, the females, those poor old ladies who don't have husbands. Let me see if I can get them a good cause to stop you guys just for a while. Because I can't stop you. But guess what? The apostles live by the Spirit of God. And they don't fall prey. The literal translation of this is leave the Word of God to serve tables. That's, that's the question. Shall we leave the Word of God so we can serve people food? That's the question that's put in front of the apostles. What shall we do? The apostles ask. Listen carefully. Satan doesn't want the Word to move. He doesn't want the word to move. I have personally felt it here. I feel it all the time. People are reluctant to study the Bible with me. There's a reluctance. And when I feel that, I know it's Satan. He doesn't want the book to be opened. He doesn't want the message to go out. And that's part of the lesson this morning. One of the struggles of reclusiveness is you can't get into contact with people. There's this barrier. Satan has managed to set up a network or a realm in our minds that makes it difficult for us to penetrate with the Word of God. Because you can't even get into people's homes. Never mind get the Word to them. So definitely, Satan is at work, and Satan has got a lot of stuff right in this country. Um, it is as if the treatment of the apostles to this problem is underpinned 
by a sentence that Jesus says. If you look at the way that they deal with this in the text, there's a, there's a verse that comes to my mind. I want to see if anybody can quote it to me. I'll, I'll say the first part. Man does not live, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That, that's essentially what underpins their whole, their whole methodology to deal with this situation here. What is more important, tables and food or the Word of God? Now, yes, the food has a place. These people need to eat. But man does not live by bread alone. So let's deal with that, but also let's not, let's not neglect the main thing, the Word of God. Now, a side note here quickly. Churches tend to, and I'm not talking about us necessarily, maybe in the past it's happened, but churches tend to develop cool ministries that sound like a nice idea, super idea. Most of the times, these ministries have nothing to do with feeding the poor or spreading the word, which, which seems to be the two things in this text. And interestingly, I've seen over the years, those ministries are usually the ministries that cause the most problems and divisions. Go think about it. Those of you who have been in the church for a while, go think about it. Like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this, I'm going to use an example. And if you want to cut my Achilles tendon, it's okay. I'll still love you, okay? And this is just my opinion. I'm too lazy to go get the chair, but I'll stand and say it. So, for example, and it might be debatable, and just forgive me. Secret sisters. Secret sisters could be something that is encouraging and the way that I understand is, you know, ladies give gifts to each other. But you've got to go back to the text and ask yourself the question, is this the proclamation of the word? And often, those are the types of ministries that cause the most problems. And so we've got we to look carefully at the ministries that we do and we focus on. And, you know, is this really the central issue of the gospel? I mean, is this what the first century church did? Or what was really the mission? I'm not criticizing secret. I think secret sisters probably made people feel great and whatever, but it's got the potential. Ministries like that. That's an example I'm just bringing up. To, you've got to ask the question, is this launched in the same direction as the proclamation of the word? And so we've got to be careful when we um, start ministries. You've got to like really ask the question, what really is the goal here? Because Satan can use those type of good-hearted ministries to park us and detract us from what God really wants us to do, which is the ministry of what? The Word. That's why I'm extremely proud of this church, because, you know, when I, when I gave the suggestion, hey, let's study the Bible with each other, it was like, I thought two people would do it. And there was quite a number of people who did it. I think it's incredible. And that's the ministry of the Word. It's, like, it's my greatest desire for all of us to participate in this mission, to participate in the ministry of the Word, and, and for us to realize, hey, I can actually share the Word with somebody else. That's the most that should be the most exciting thing that we do as Christians. More exciting than 
the Secret Sisters ministry or uh, let's paint the carpet ministry, whatever ministry there is. So, the, 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 the apostles say, we will not be thwarted on our mission and our mandate. We will not, um, we will not let anything um, stop our mission. But we need help. The Word of God needs priority. And so, we, we need practical assistance. And so, how do they outwit Satan? First of all, what do they do? The first thing they do is they say, okay, um, let's call a meeting. Let's call a meeting. Who do they invite to this meeting? The whole church. Everybody. I think that's wise. Because it means that there's transparency. It means, and this is wisdom from the apostles. I mean, if you want to talk about authority, the apostles could have just said, do this, do this, do this. Now they invite the whole church. It's wisdom. Let's hear what everybody has to say. They explain the situation. So they have an open family meeting. Secondly, since the church grumbles, let the church choose their leaders in this situation. I think this was clever and unique. And I think the reason why it was clever and unique is because under the old Jewish um, way, how did, they, how did leaders come about? How did the priests come about? Pedigree, ladies and gentlemen, because you were a Levite. It came through your bloodline. And now suddenly, what? We can select from among us spiritual leaders? This is unique and different for us. The apostles are setting a whole new level of, of leadership ideas for us. What other benefit is there in doing it this way? Well, if you were a, a Hellenistic Jew and your whole Hellenistic family lived in Jerusalem... What type of a person do you think you'll be looking for? Because now you have, you have a say in who's going to distribute the food. And you had a problem with the distribution of food. So, so what type of a person do you think you're going to get and vote for? You're going to get a Hellenistic guy, isn't it? You're going to get somebody who speaks Greek too and understands your culture and knows your heart. This is wise of the apostles. Um, you, you see, you can't complain against the leaders if you selected them yourself. You with me? Everybody awake? Okay. So, what's one of the signs that I see around town so often? Don't blame me, I voted Trump. Have you seen that? So, maybe there's wisdom in that. So, 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 so they've got an open family meeting, then they tell the church, you guys, you guys grumble, so you guys vote, and then they give some guiding qualifications. Um, it's interesting, there's a Greek word there um, for brothers and sisters, verse 3, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. The two qualifications is what? Full of Spirit and full of wisdom. But there's an interesting word there, um, the note to be is actually um, marturio, where we get the word martyr from. And the, the idea is, is to be a witness of. And so he's saying to the church, you guys, and this is interesting, he's, he's saying, you guys have witnessed people. You've seen with your own eyes how people operate and think around you. So look at the people that you've witnessed and look for a person that is what? Full of spirit and full of wisdom. And this tells me, going back to this morning's lesson, 
these people were connected. I mean, if you go to some of these big churches, I mean, how many people do you think there were? Thousands. And they could choose seven people? They were connected with each other. You go to a 5,000 member church today in this world and tell them that they need to go, you know, what are the people that they've witnessed to be full of spirit and wisdom? It will be a battle. I think you'll have some funny names coming out there because most people won't have a clue because most people just go and leave, go and leave. That that interconnectedness is not there. So um, I think... The reason why he alternates wisdom and and Holy Spirit, in my estimation, the word for wisdom, the definition for wisdom, sorry, is the skill of life, the ability to make good decisions. And so I think there's a practical and a spiritual component here. We need men who have practical ability, intellect, who's got the skill of life to be able to manage this thing. But we need people that's driven by the Spirit as well so that things will be done God's way which I think is a nice, balanced um, approach. Why seven? Who'd like to know why they chose seven? I've got a really cool answer for you. You ready? I don't know either. I don't think there's a particular reason. But seven is always a central number, right? Sorry for that disappointment. There's four is key, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That's what we want. We're not going to let anything detract us. Prayer and the spread of the Word should be our main task. This church, it should be our main task. Prayer and the spread of the Word. The preaching, the ministry of the Word comes first. Fellowship, other things, always comes after that. Now, this proposal pleased the whole group. So how does the church respond to this? They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch. A convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Lo and behold, who do they select? A proselyte. Somebody who speaks Greek. Thank you. Thank you, apostles, for that wise. We think that the other six guys were probably Hebrew, uh, Hebrews, but it's definitely sure that Nicholas was Greek-speaking and therefore a Hellenistic Jew. And then they have a representative as their leader. Well done, apostles. You guys are wise. Those of you who studied um, Hebrews chapter 6, did anybody here tonight get the topic of laying on of hands? You were very lucky, because that's a difficult one. But here it is very well explained. Laying on of hands is launching somebody into responsibility of ministry. That's what it's about. And the reason why the laying on of hands is important for a new Christian to think about is because it refers to the, the idea that we, when we become Christians, should be doing something, serving. And then... Look at that. The best verse of everything we've read so far tonight. So, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. 
and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Well done, apostles. Good job. The word spread. The church grew. Even priests obeyed the gospel. Everything the church does must be done in such a way that it doesn't prevent the spread of the word. When the word spreads, the church grows. And I think that Luke especially mentions the conversion of the priests. Because the gospel was penetrating the Jewish hierarchy. The Levitical priesthood was being penetrated by the gospel. Remember what the, uh, the Sanhedrin said to them. Or, or what the challenge was from Gamaliel. If this is from God, you won't be able to stop it. If it's not of God, it will die. And what do we see here? We see here the slow death of the Sanhedrin, which ended in AD 70. It's incredible. And so you see throughout the book of Luke, Luke is inter, intertwining, interweaving these different themes, the, the growth of the kingdom of God and the death of the Jewish faith based on works. And I think that's why Luke mentions it here. So let, let me conclude. How can we expand the word, increase the word? When does this church produce the word? Just on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening like this? Is that when the word is spoken? Or can we be a church where when we leave here, we actually each take the word with us and spreads it as we go about? Because that's the key. I hope you see it. That's the key. That's the reason why I talk so often about making disciples and about us studying our Bibles ourselves. Because the word is worthy of spending your time and effort on. The word changes the world. The one thing the enemy hates is the Word. And so that should be the thing that's on, on our hearts and our minds. Now we might say, yeah, but um, it's not really my thing and it shouldn't be my thing to spread the Word. I mean, look at this. You have some people, what do they do? They feed people. That's their job. They, they help the widows with food. And then you got the apostles. They proclaim the Word. But there's a problem because if you... Know the book of Acts, what happens in the next chapter? Stephen gets killed. One of these guys who serves at the table, why does he get killed? Because of the word. What happens in chapter 8? Philip, he's one of these guys. Where is he found? He's in Samaria. And then he ends up on the road down um, to Ethiopia. And, he, and he, what does he do? He preaches the word. We all have responsibility to represent Christ with our mouths. Not all of us are going to have equal opportunities. Not all of us are going to be capable of doing it as well as the other person, but it should be something that we desire uh, to do. We have a long way ahead of us, but we can do it. I'm going to close off with a section that I wrote four years ago, three years ago during COVID in a, in a book that I wrote. It's called An Army Fighting No One. It's just two paragraphs. In the New Testament Scriptures, we are told to put on the full armor of God, right? One of the weapons we must use is the sword of the Spirit, which is what, by the way? The Word of God. 
Now, we know that's the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. Paul also tells Timothy that no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs, but rather he wants to please his commanding officer. That's 2 Timothy 2, verse 4. So, like armies try to take over territories, like Russia is trying to do with Ukraine, so the disciples of God have been commanded to take the gospel into the far reaches of the world. But when armies take over territories, what do they have to have ready? Do you think? Weapons. If you're going to take out a territory, you need to have your weapons ready. And you've got to make sure that you're not distracted. Two weeks ago, I preached about the idea of being, or a week ago, of being attentive to lions. <coughs> I think it's worth, anybody here been in the army? Has anybody ever been shot at? Yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, I think it's a scary thought. I mean, so you go into the battlefield with, with, with a gun, right? If you do not have weapons or you do not use them, you might as well do what? Stay at home. You're just going to get shot. So why be, in the, why be in the military field waging war without a weapon and not use it? You might as well just stay at home. If you are going to get distracted on mission, you might as well just not even try. I mean, you can imagine going to war, walking into the war zone, and you're playing on your phone. I mean, can, can you imagine that? You can't even... <laughs> but yet that's, for me, a symbol of much of, or an illustration of much of Christianity. Today, a large portion of the army of God sit in the barracks. You know what barracks are, right? So the army sits in the barracks, which I call church services. While they are there in the barracks, they polish their swords, which is what? The Bible. So, you take out your sword, you take out your gun, you take it apart. By the way, yesterday I saw 50 Christian men shoot their guns at the same time. I was dug. I thought they are going to shoot down the mountain. I've never seen the most aggressive Christians on planet earth. Pam, pam, pam. It's crazy. Yo, America's got guns and stuff. Anyways. Now, I see some of these guys, they got these guns, and I ask, well, what do you, I'm like thinking, I said to Doug, well, what do you do with that gun? And we just shoot it. Now, for me, personally, for me, I have a gun to kill an animal so that I can have food. There's a purpose why I have the gun, not just to shoot it because it sounds nice. But unfortunately, many times our Christianity is like that. We polish the Bible, or we read and study it in the barracks, the church services, and we love it and we like the way that it is. And, and you know, we, we, yo, we polish this gun, we, we check out what the Greek says and we check everything out. We're so happy. Every week we go back to the barracks and we polish this thing. But when they leave, they tuck away their weapons. Because the sword and the gun is only something that you use, that you clean in the barracks. It's not something you, you take to go shoot out there. It doesn't have a purpose except to be looked at and admired and said, well, that's incredible. That's unfortunately what much of Christianity has become. We don't know how to use our rifles. We don't even know how to draw a sword. We pack it away when we leave here. That's why Satan is winning. 
Most often we get distracted with life. And so people bring their Bibles, their swords to church, to the barracks, but they never take it out in the workplace or in new territory. Where what? It's supposed to be used. It's a weapon. The Bible is actually there to be used out there. That's actually why we have it. Because it's a weapon. Ephesians says it's a weapon. For what? For the darkness. So it's no use that we polish our weapons and plug it in when we walk out. No, it's like we come in here, we polish it, we clean it so that it's useful, so that we can go out and use it. We walk out of there, sword drawn, gun in the hand. I'll blow you away, Satan. So what we have worldwide is a massive army that have been deactivated. Think about it. The Christian army is the biggest army on planet Earth. But it's deactivated. Because why is evil winning? Because Satan has managed to find ways to distract us. And so this army is not in service. Then I write, it is a crime to have the most potent weapon in the world and not use it. It is senseless to call yourself a soldier, but you never go to war. 